Good morning, church. Please grab your Bibles and open to Matthew 13, verse 44. It is an honor to stand before you today as we all sit under the word of God. Indeed, God speaks. That's why we gather each week to hear God speak. Let's pray before we begin. Oh Lord God, three persons and one essence, you are holy like no other. Lord, I pray that we would listen this morning to your true and infallible word. I ask that you would grant us understanding, and I ask that you would grant us a heart that treasures you more than anything else. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, O Lord, stands forever. Amen. Church, I invite you this morning to worship with me, to join me in worship. We often think of worship as music, and yet preaching is worship. And so this morning, I pray that you would not just listen, but that you would worship the glory of God that we see in this portion of his scriptures. Before we read our verses today, I'd like to just take a moment to talk about where we are in the book of Matthew. I know that some of you might have joined VBF recently. Uh, It might be within the past few months. Uh, For some of you, it might be your first time visiting today. And so I just want to talk about where we're at in the book and give you kind of an overview. We've been in the book of Matthew for a while, and we're finishing off chapter 13 today, and it's kind of this midpoint in the book. It's, It's almost about halfway. The gospel of Matthew is all about the king and his kingdom. But there's this thread that runs throughout the book about the king's authority. The very first week of this study, Pastor Greg opened up Matthew chapter 1 for us and taught us two things. He taught that this king has authority because he is a qualified king. He was racially qualified because he was descended from the family line of Abraham. And he is royally qualified because he is descended from the family line of David. The famous ending of the book of Matthew is the Great Commission. And how does Jesus start this commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so throughout this book, we see this king bringing forth his kingdom and teaching with authority. He has authority like no other. The book of Matthew has these five famous and most notable sections of teaching. Chapter 13 is the third. We're right in the middle. And the whole chapter is about how Jesus is teaching in parables. And if you remember back to chapter 12, or for those who weren't here, just the chapter before this, for the first time we saw that Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees or the religious leaders of his day. His authority was challenged. And so chapter 13 is actually a response to that. Jesus teaches in parables, but parables aren't just cute stories. They actually serve two purposes. The first purpose is blessing, but the second is judgment. 
Blessing and judgment. Blessing to those who have been given understanding of the parable, but judgment to those who have not given understanding. And so we see that they serve as a form of judgment to these religious leaders who opposed the authority of the king. And yet they're also a great blessing to Jesus' followers. Today we come to the last set of parables in chapter 13. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 44. So if you look with me, starting in verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the first two parables that we're looking at today are the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. And the heartbeat of the parables of this whole chapter, Jesus is teaching us what true belief in God looks like versus what false belief in God looks like. The parable of the sower is where we started. And Jesus showed us that when the seed is spread, there are three kinds of people who do not truly receive it, and yet one kind of person who does. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we saw that some will believe and some will not. And that there will be a judgment one day where these groups will be separated. I think in this chapter that Jesus teaches us a lot about what true belief is versus what false belief is. But I think in this chapter that he gives us three evidences of what true belief is. He doesn't leave us without description of what a true belief is and discipleship of God looks like. The first evidence that we see is understanding. If you look at Matthew 13, verse 23, this is when Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And so the first evidence of true belief is understanding. Paul said that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. It's foolish. They have not been given understanding. But true belief understands the gospel. The second evidence is fruit, and we see it in this same verse. He continues on. Indeed, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And Pastor Greg covered this well last week. A believer produces fruit. There's an evident change in the life of a person when they begin following Christ. That person wants to share the message that they have received. And the third evidence we see here in verse 44 through 46, the third evidence is a heart that treasures the kingdom. If the second evidence is the fruit... The third he shares here is the root. And at this point in the chapter, Jesus is speaking just to his followers. If you look at verse 36, it says he left the crowds and went into the house with his disciples. And so here he's providing to his followers. This is unique. He was speaking to the crowds before, and yet now he's speaking just to those who are following him. 
And he gives them these two parables, which are quite simple and yet make a profound point. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a great treasure or, or a pearl that holds immense value, greater value than any other pearl that there was. And what he's showing us is that the kingdom of heaven is greater in value than anything else in all of life. So much so that the attitude of the Christian is that they would be willing to sell everything, give up everything they have to have the kingdom. Yes, fruit is a clear evidence of faith. But that stems from this heart. It stems from the right root. If you would turn again just back to chapter 12, what I referred to earlier when the Pharisees came and challenged Jesus' authority, he provided this uh, response and rebuke to them. If you look at chapter 12, starting in verse 33, this is just before he's speaking these parables. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What Jesus is showing us here is that the heart leads to the actions. Right? The root leads to the fruit. And Jesus is showing us in verse 44 that what you treasure in your heart will be what flows out of your heart. What flows into your life, into your actions, into your words. It starts with the root. And then we see the fruit. You may say, okay, I understand this fruit, root to fruit relationship, but, but what is Jesus talking about in these verses? What does it mean to treasure the kingdom of God? And so I want us to look at that this morning. What, what does that mean? What does that look like to treasure the kingdom? And first, I, I feel the need to just briefly talk about what the kingdom is. If we're going to be talking about treasuring it, we need to know what it is. We need to be clear about what it is and what it leads to. So one day, Jesus will return to the earth again. God will create a new heavens and a new earth where he will reign in a physical kingdom over and through his people on this new creation. Heaven will be a physical kingdom. It will be the reign of God over his people in this new creation. But where does that leave us now? If you remember back to chapter 4 and also chapter 3, John the Baptist and Jesus both said, that the kingdom of heaven is near, it's close, it's at hand. And so what did he mean by this? Well, the kingdom of heaven came when Jesus came, and it is still this way now. It is a spiritual kingdom. We could define it in our present time, probably most simply as the rule and the reign of God, We could also define it as the spiritual reign and rule of God in the lives of those who believe. Right? This is why the kingdom is described as righteousness, peace, and joy. Because those things are a result of allowing God to reign and rule in your life. 
right? The reign of Christ in your life causes you to want to walk in righteousness and obedience to his good commands. It causes peace to spring forth in your heart from the great sovereignty and power of the king who is for you. And it causes joy to rise within you because you know that your king loves you and that you've now been given purpose to live for his glory. To have the reign and the rule of God in your heart is to be saved. It's to give lordship of Jesus over your life. It's to be saved, to trust Jesus as your savior. It's to enter in and be a part of the kingdom. Thus we can say that Jesus here is pointing us to treasure the reign and rule of God. We can say that Jesus is pointing us to treasure our salvation. But I think there's something else we need to say here. What do these things lead to? In in other words, what, what is the aim and the purpose of our salvation? Because I fear if we aren't careful, we can substitute the blessings of God for God himself. In John Piper's book, God is the Gospel, he asks a question that truly pierces to the heart, and I want to ask it today, and I want you to consider it. He says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Consider that this morning. You see, the end goal of our salvation is not just to be saved from something, but to be brought to God himself. One of the clearest scriptural basis for this is 1 Peter 3.18. You can write that one down. You don't have to turn to it. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's not just to be saved from something. It's that he might bring us to God himself. From the Old Testament to the New, we see that the desire of the human heart that has faith in God is not just to be saved from something, but to be saved unto loving and beholding and treasuring God himself. Psalm 27.4, another one you can write down, says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The scripture that was read for us today was Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. And Paul said, I count everything as loss in my life because of the surpassing worth of of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I suffered the loss of all things. I count all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus is the goal. The great treasure is knowing Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself in John 17.3 described eternal life in this way. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the aim of all scripture. This is the aim of the gospel that we might know God and enjoy and love him forever. And thus Jesus is pointing us to treasuring the kingdom, but ultimately he is pointing us to treasuring God himself. And so as we consider God himself as the great treasure of all life, I'd like to give you three reasons this morning from scripture that God is to be treasured. These are certainly not the only reasons, but these are three things from the scriptures that I want to draw out of why God is to be treasured. And the first is that God is worthy. God is truly the most worthy person in all the universe of all praise and honor and glory. His value is supreme. We see this in the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. The point of the parable is not only to show us how the man thinks about the treasure, but also to show us that the treasure itself has exceeding value. That the kingdom is of greatest value more than anything else in all of life. Have you ever thought about what gives something value? Like a car or house or diamond all value and worth is assigned there's a degree in which rarity plays a case right how rare something is might increase the value but really value is assigned because it could be rare and still not be valuable we think something has value if it's worthwhile and important to us that's why uh, something that could be so valuable to you could be a journal that your grandmother wrote in, but that could have no value to somebody else. Value is assigned. But when it comes to God, his value isn't assigned. It's inherent to who he is. Since he existed before everything was, and he is the one and only creator of all things, his value is not determined by something outside himself, but by the inherent worthiness of who he is. He is most simply the most worthy person there ever is or ever could be. And in fact, everything in the universe has value because God has given it value. He has assigned it value. He gives all things value, and that's what's so amazing about human beings being made in the image of God, because we have been made in the image of that which is the most valuable. God is more worthy than any other, all because of inherent, his inherent nature of who he is. There is none more glorious than God. There is none more powerful than God. There is none more beautiful than God. None more wise. None more holy. None more gracious. None more merciful. More just. More loving. More majestic. More transcendent. More steadfast and more sovereign as our God. There is no one like the Lord. Truly this you can open up the Bible anywhere and find this truth. But to give you a scripture reference, 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The second reason that God is to be treasured is that because of his greatness, our hearts were made to worship him. 
Because of his greatness, our hearts were made to worship him. Truly, if he is the most glorious one in all the universe, then all created things were created to behold and to worship his glory. Every single person that walks the earth was made, was designed with a heart that was made to behold the glory of God. The human heart is a worshiping one. That's how we were made, even when we deny it. We still have a worshiping heart. We all seek to find happiness in something. None of us are self-sufficient enough to just be happy within ourselves. We all seek to find it elsewhere. And we were made to find that happiness in God. And yet people search their whole lives in constant search of this happiness. Right? And the number one people give, the number one answer that people give when you ask them, what do you want out of life? is to be happy. And yet testimony after testimony of people who are not Christians is that power leaves you empty, sex leaves you empty, success will leave you empty, fame, empty, money, empty. God is the one thing that can satisfy the depths of our heart. In our first parable about the hidden treasure, we see that the, when the man finds this treasure, he responds with great joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Scripture often uses a metaphor in different places to describe the longing of our hearts. And it uses the metaphor of thirst, right? Just as our bodies thirst for water, so our hearts long for something as well. You might think of a time when you were so thirsty. Maybe it had been a day of yard work or something, or, or maybe it had been, you know, after an athletic thing, and yet you were just so thirsty for that water. It paints a picture that this is the longing that all of our hearts have. And just as our hearts long for something to satisfy them, the Bible presents that the only thing that can satisfy our hearts is God. Jesus himself in his ministry stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus wasn't handing out cups of water. And later, at the woman at the well, he says, the water that I give to him He's, or he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. He's the one our hearts were made to adore. Just consider today, what might you be running to other than Jesus to try to satisfy that longing? Is it a spouse? Your kids? A job? Maybe something like alcohol or, or sex? Whatever it might be. Turn your heart this morning back to Jesus. He is the fountain of living waters, the only one that can satisfy the depths of your soul. Third and lastly, God is to be treasured because of the righteousness he gave us through the cross. Because of the righteousness he gave us through the cross. The righteousness of Jesus is the greatest gift you will ever know and ever receive. 
There is nothing you are more in need of than the righteousness of Christ. We all stand guilty under the wrath of God because of the treason and rebellion that we have committed against the king of the universe. And yet, because of his love for you, he sent his only son to die in your place, to literally be the substitute in your place, to take the full wrath of God upon himself so that your unrighteousness would be placed on him and his righteousness placed on you. The cross and Jesus' resurrection three days later served as the greatest act of love in human history. And in that act, God provided a way for you to be saved from his wrath and forgiven of your sins forever. God provided a way for you to actually receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. The only perfect man to ever live gave you his right, good, and innocent standing and took upon himself the guilting standing that you had. All so that we may have eternal life. All so that we may know and worship him for all eternity. To the praise of his great glory. If you're here this morning or you're listening online and you do not know God, you've not trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross, I want to be, be clear here. This is the greatest treasure you could ever hope for. I can promise you that. And all you need to do to receive it is to turn from your life of self-sufficiency, sin, and rebellion and turn instead to God, the one who paid it all for you on the cross. To review, God is to be treasured because he is worthy of all honor in the universe, because of who he is. God is the only one who can satisfy the great longing of the human heart, and God is the giver of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to all who would believe him. Oh, that we would treasure Christ in our hearts this morning. Oh, that we would honor him with the honor due to his name. Oh, that we might worship him for the great treasure that he is. There is none other as glorious as our God. But for those of you here who are Christians, you know this experience from when you first believed, right? You know that you heard the gospel. You heard that you, you, you realized that God was greater than everything else, and you said, yes, I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. And yet, if we're honest, that love and that treasuring can fade. It can grow dim. Other things can come into our lives, and that great treasuring of the kingdom isn't what it was. But oh, how merciful and gracious our God is in the gifts of grace that he's given us. What great need we have for preaching that holds to the word of God week in and week out. We didn't choose to speak about this today. This was the next thing that Jesus spoke about. We're just bringing it to you. And today, God is speaking to you through his word. He's reminding you of the greatest treasure there ever was. And he's calling you back to treasure the kingdom in your heart. He's inviting you to drink from the fountain of living waters that never runs dry. I believe one of the most beautiful prayers is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
And so if you're sitting here this morning and your heart feels cold toward the Lord, ask that he would grant you a heart like this. Ask him to provide you great belief to treasure him. As we finish out this chapter of Matthew, I think in our last several parables here, we come full circle to what he's been talking about really all along. And there are two more parables here that Jesus tells his followers that he's really reminding of them of what he's already been teaching. And first is the parable of the net. So if you look in verse 47, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus is clear here. There will be a judgment to come when he returns. We saw the same thing in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But here Jesus emphasizes again. He comes back to it. He says when he returns, the righteous will be separated from the evil. And really, the, the righteous are just those who have put faith in Christ. It's not any set of rules or things that they've accomplished. It is simply by faith in Christ that they are the righteous. But they will be separated from those who do not have faith in Christ. This day is coming. And I think Jesus shows us what our response to be should be in the next parable. And so let's read in verses 51 and 52 for the last parable of this chapter. Jesus says to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus asks his disciples, do you understand these parables that I've set before you? And they say, yes. No doubt their understanding is somewhat limited, but they are tracking with Jesus here. And so Jesus says, therefore, let me share one more with you. First, th this one is a, a little more difficult to understand on the surface. And so we're going to unpack it. First, what does Jesus mean by every scribe that is trained for the kingdom? And the first observation that we need to make is that Jesus is not saying that some are trained for the kingdom and some are not trained for the kingdom. Like, okay, let's let all the trained ones do all the work. No, that is not what he's saying. And in fact, I think the NASB translation helps us out here a little bit more at the, the root meaning of that word trained. It says, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. And we have to realize that one does not become a disciple through training. Right? It's not like this wealth of knowledge that we just need to share and dump on somebody and then they're a disciple. That's not what makes someone a disciple. Otherwise, we would just hold a big lesson and we would coerce people to get in here to do that. That's not what makes someone a disciple. You can't just learn information and then follow Jesus. Becoming a disciple is a gift that is granted. Understanding is a gift that is granted. And to be a Christian is to be a disciple. 
to be a Christian is to be trained for the kingdom. I mean, think about who Jesus was talking to at this point. These guys just did not have it all together. It was this ragtag group of disciples. These guys were not trained in ministry. They were not trained in the theology of Jesus. They simply followed Jesus. And I love in Acts chapter 4, later on in the Bible, when two of these guys, Peter and John, they go and preach the gospel in this town, and then the religious leaders, those that the Jewish religious leaders, angry at them, pull them before their council. And they say that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. These guys were uneducated, common men, and they're out there sharing the gospel. And that's why, what I love about how Greg has ex- exhorted us each week to share what we know. It's not about knowing at all. If we know the gospel, we know enough. If you know the gospel, you are trained. You now have enough to go share with others. Everyone who is a disciple is the scribe in this. And a scribe is a teacher. If you've received the gospel, it is our mission to teach it to others. And Jesus compares the disciples to a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What does this mean, a master of a house? Well, his treasure is his heart. If you think back to chapter 12, where Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he used the phrase, the good person out of his good treasure, meaning what he treasures in his heart, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so he's talking about here the heart. Right? This is what we've already learned in the parable of the hidden treasure, in the parable of the pearl of great value, that what you treasure, you will share. It will flow out of you. If we treasure the kingdom, we want others to know about the kingdom. And Jesus is saying here, out of the treasure you have found in the kingdom, teach that to others. One last note, what is old and what is new I believe is referring to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, New Covenant in the New. And and we understand that the gospel doesn't just start with Jesus on the scene. right? We have to understand the gospel from day one of the Bible, or, or page one of the Bible. That first, God created all things good, but man rebelled against his good reign. And Jesus is the solution. He is the answer. He is the rescue mission for mankind. And so when we share, we share the whole gospel, the old and the new. We learned earlier in the book of Matthew that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old. That the new doesn't just get rid of the old, but fulfills it. And thus, each disciple of Jesus uses the old and the new to teach others about the gospel. So what do we see here at the end? Jesus has just talked to us about what we treasure in our hearts. And now he brings it full circle to things he taught us about before. He first reiterates that judgment is coming. That that's just the truth and the reality of it. And that should create a great sense of urgency that we ought to have. And thus, if we've understood this, as Jesus asks, 
We should now go and share that with others because they need this message. They, they, they need the treasure that we found, right? Don't, don't we love to share what we treasure? Right? If you find a TV show that you love, you're telling everybody about it. If you find a new restaurant that you love, you're telling everybody about it. In the same way, when our hearts treasure Christ at what is most valuable to us, we want to tell others. And lastly, Jesus heads back to his hometown where he faces further rejection. If we pick it up in verse 53, we'll finish out the chapter here. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him because Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so we see that Jesus here is rejected by those in the town that he grew up in. Again, we see a rejection of Jesus' authority. I mean, this is the authority of the king of all kings. And Matthew is pointing out, to, out this to us to hear that some will believe and follow and some won't. Even some of the most familiar with Jesus will not believe. Really what he's been talking about this whole chapter, some will believe truly and some will not. And thus we should expect as we scatter the seed of the word of God that some will receive and some will reject but it's not our job to make one or the other happen. Our job is just to spread the seed, to broadcast the seed, to broadcast the good news of the gospel to all we can. Oh God, help us in this great mission you've given us. But always remember that we don't just share out of this sense of duty or this is just what we're told. No, it's something greater. We share out of the treasure of our heart. We share out of our love for God. We share out of the fact that God is the most glorious thing. God is the most worthy one in all the universe. He is a treasure beyond all comparison. As we close, I'd like to ask everyone just to, to close your eyes and just take a minute to reflect. Reflect on what God's word has spoken to you today. Maybe this morning you see Christ as this great treasure. As a result of this word and you feel excited, eager to share about him. Take this moment to ask the Lord for opportunities and for boldness. Maybe you heard God's word today and you feel that your heart is cold toward him. But you desire to see him as the great treasure of your life. Confess this to the Lord and ask God to give you that heart. Maybe this morning you don't believe in God, but you're here. Maybe you're listening and, and you don't believe, but after hearing this about the greatest treasure there ever is, you want to receive the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
All you need to do now is turn. Pray to him. Or maybe you just need to take this moment to worship in your prayer and praise God for who he is. But take just a moment now to reflect. Oh, Lord, we just bring our prayers to you now. I pray now that you would answer the prayers of your people. And God, I pray that you'd give us a view of you, a picture of you. That's the greatest treasure that one could ever hope for. God, that you truly are more glorious. There is none like you. Grant us, O oh Lord a heart that might see you this way. For you truly are that treasure, whether we see you that way or not. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that value you in this way that we would give up everything to have you and you only. We thank you for your word that you speak to us each and every week. We thank you just for those that might be suffering here this morning, that you've given us the hope of a great treasure, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. For those here that are sinking in the weight of their sin, would they receive the great gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and know that they are forgiven and viewed as Jesus. And Lord, for those here who may feel self-sufficient, they may feel as though they do not need you. I pray that you would create in them a great sense of need. That it would be clear to them that there is nothing that they are more in need of than you. God, I thank you for time to worship you through your word and the glory you've shown us. And we pray this in the great and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Church, before we leave, I'd like us all just to stand, and I want to read just a benediction for us as we head out. Before I read this, I just want to remind you all Maybe you're here for the first time and you don't know, but we have prayer partners and elders that are up here near the front on either side. And so if you need prayer today, please come ask them for prayer. They would love to pray with you. They, they would be delighted to just get to bring what's on your heart to the Lord. And so I just want to make sure that you all know that they'll be here after service. And so please come up if you need that prayer. But here's our benediction, and this is how we'll end. Romans 15, 13. And it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
you may abound in all hope. Amen. Thank you for being here, church, and we'll see you next week.